0: It's good to be here today. We'll go ahead and get started with our class time. This morning we are going in our teaching to finish the section that I started quite a while ago. Now we'll open us with a word of prayer and then we'll jump into 1 Peter chapter 2. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity we have to be together as your people. Lord, we're a family, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and while we, even in this room, don't know each other as we will for all eternity, you know us. You know us personally, you know us intimately, and we thank you, Lord, that in spite of who we are, you saved us. Lord, you chose to set your love upon us, and we can only express gratitude. As we study your word today, Lord, I pray that we would have the heart attitude of expectation that you would meet us in your word and that you would sharpen us for your service. I pray that you would help me to not be distracted by my physical body and help me to be able to accurately communicate the truth from your word. And I pray, Lord, after Sunday school, that you would be with us as we hear Pastor Steve preach this morning, that we would hear the word from him and With all of these things, you would use your word to build us up to be your people serving your will. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing our study of 1 Peter, and as you are aware, if you've been here, we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're finishing a section that begins at verse 13, and it ends in verse 17, and this morning... We're going to be finishing it by covering verse 17. But I want to read the entire section to you. I want to give a, a little bit of an overview of what we've already covered. And then I want to dive into the text as it's presented to us. Beginning at verse 13. Actually, even though I'm, this section's 13 to 17. I'm going to go back to verse 11 for my reading this morning. Beloved... I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king." As we have gone over this material, I have broken it down into a four-part outline, and it's, the way I've labeled it, is four aspects of living in God's will. And I'm going to review those points, even though this morning we're going to be camped out on the fourth. The first was, God's will is for His children to submit to every form of human government. We get that from verses 13 and 14, and it's very clear, submit yourselves. This is an action that we undertake, not when we're under threat from the government, but before anything else happens, we voluntarily place ourselves under the governing authorities. And we do that because we understand, even when a government is not ideal, even when it's not what we prefer, God is still the one who ordains the government. Peter gave a summary of the role of government, of punishing and rewarding, but it's not a civics lesson, it's really just telling us that we are to submit for the Lord's sake. It's not for the sake of our particular country. It wasn't in Peter's day for the sake of Rome. It wasn't in our day for the sake of America. It's for the Lord's sake. The issue is God. If the government mandates we sin, of course, then we obey God. We always obey God rather than man. But absent a direct command to sin, then we submit. The reason is because our lives are on display to a lost and dying world. And that's the second aspect of living in God's will. God's will is that our submission will convict unbelievers. Verse 15 makes that clear. It says, we'll silence the ignorance of foolish men. And it really, going back to 11 and 12, there are people that slander Christians. But our living, quiet, submissive lives in relation to the government is supposed to shut some of them up the idea that it will muzzle them because they're going to be making accusations against us and they're just not true. Again, like Christ himself, we'll be accused of false things. Our goal is to make sure they actually are false accusations. Not true. Humble submission for the Lord's sake to our government is imperative because it shows to a lost and dying world that we submit to God. Such is the will of God. The many questions, what's God's will in a particular situation in relation to our government, it's crystal clear. We submit, and when we do so, it's going to sometimes convict unbelievers. There's a third aspect of living in God's will, it's that God's will never leads us into sin. And that's really what we covered last week. Verse 16, we're supposed to act as free men. Not hiding behind our Christianity to engage in sin. Not saying that now that I'm free and I'm forgiven, I can do whatever I want. That's never a true understanding of what freedom in Christ is. We're freed from being slaves to sin. We're freed from the bondage of sin. We're freed from the domain of darkness. We're freed from the clutches of Satan. But that doesn't mean that now we can just go and do whatever we want to do. If anything, our freedom now enables us to be slaves of God because for the first time in our lives, with joy in our hearts, we can obey the commands of God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So our freedom in Christ isn't a freedom such that we can go and do whatever we want. It's a freedom to actually obey. To show our love for the Lord by serving Him. As bond slaves of God, we are God's servants. It's a wrong view of thinking to think that we're now free agents. That we've been freed from one bondage, but now there is no bondage. No, we're freed from that enslavement, but now we're slaves of righteousness, according to the scripture. We can follow the Lord. It's not in my notes, and it's really, I don't know why I thought of it, but I thought of it. In the former Soviet Union, I was able to go to Ukraine at one point. If you said you were a Calvinist there, it had nothing to do with salvation. It had to do with lifestyle. Because there were some over the centuries that had perverted teaching that said, Look, it doesn't matter what you do. So in that era, if you said you were a Calvinist, it meant you were going to be out in bars. You were going to be out drinking. You were going to be out smoking. It's a strange circumstance. Because some people had said, God is sovereign so I can do anything. That's false. It was false then. It was false in the former Soviet Union. It was false 2,000 years ago. in Peter's day, it's false today. And I've still encountered people, typically young people, that walk down that road. That think, hey, I can just live in the world because I'm forgiven. That shows a heart that's deeply confused and not where it needs to be. God's will never leads us into sin and certainly it can never allow us to justify sin. Now, that brief overview gets us to our fourth and final point which will conclude this section. Four aspects of living in God's will. The fourth aspect is this. God's will mandates that we live at peace. God's will mandates that we live at peace. And what you're going to see as we go through this is this is played out in four different areas. Verse 17 says this. Honor all people Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. This is four distinct commands, four distinct areas of life, but it's so comprehensive that this really sums up everything we need to know about living our lives. Everything that has to do with human relationships really could be summed up right here. Now, there might be nuances, but this should be the framework that governs all of the spheres of human interaction. I've summarized it as living in peace, because I think if we're obeying this, that actually is what happens. We're living at peace across the board. Romans 12.18 says this. Romans 12.18 If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Hebrews 12:14 shares a similar concept. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. I think what Peter is telling us here is one of the ways that we, by guarding our hearts in each of these areas, can make sure we're at peace. At least, as so far, it depends on us. Stated another way, if there's disruption, if there's conflict, it should not come from us. While it may seem naive, and I, unfortunately, tend towards cynicism. I tend towards distrusting everyone. I've said I'm not very often disappointed because I don't expect anything from people. That's not a Christian way to live. I'm sorry, that's not good. But that's my heart. That's how I walk around far too often. But one of the fruits of the Spirit of God is peace. Peace. God's working to produce that in us and I think that's what Peter is showing us in part is how we can fit within that framework. He begins with this first command that's comprehensive. Honor all people. Honor all people. This is so comprehensive that really it covers everything. If you were... Following this command, you would never treat another human being with contempt and scorn. It doesn't mean you would always appreciate their behavior. It doesn't mean you would rejoice in their sin. But it would mean you would not harbor scorn and disdain for another human being just because they exist. The word honor has the idea of treating every other person you meet with a measure of respect. If you looked around in our culture, we are lacking in honor. You see the news articles. You see what's going on. And people have always been sinful. Social media seems to have allowed that sin to bubble to the surface much more quickly. People don't treat one another honorably. In fact, the word honor has lost its meaning in our culture. People seem to be lacking in a basic understanding of the need to treat one another with even minimal kindness. It's lacking in our culture, but if we're not careful, it can be lacking in the church. And the phraseology, all people, if you look at the original language, it really is inclusive of everyone. Every human being, male and female, every tribe and tongue and nation, every skin color, every social background, every nation on the earth represented in our melting pot of America. Honor all people. Where does that play into our lives? Well, everywhere you exist. We need at times, and I am preaching to myself, we need at times to think theologically about the human race. Now, we affirm and teach and know that it's true that all men are sinners from birth. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the basis of our existence. That's why the gospel's necessary. Yet this does not negate the fact that there is some value in every human being on the earth. What do I mean by that? Of course, they're all sinners. What's that value? They're created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Seven or eight billion people, depending on what time of day, it seems to be growing rapidly. They're all imprinted with the image of God. Period. The worst of sinners still are bearers of the image of the Creator. We have to challenge ourselves on this point because we're easily susceptible to concluding that some people are not worth the time of day. Some people should be despised, we think in our mind. But we have to be careful with that. I'm going to use an illustration that plays out in our day. Islamic terrorism has done a lot of damage in the world. Certainly it's changed the fabric of America from 9-11 forward. But I think we run the risk of hating people because they're Muslim. As opposed to thinking of them of souls who need the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Such that I saw even Christians rejoicing in an unhealthy way when Osama bin Laden was killed. Mind you, sometimes that's necessary to restrain evil. But we should never rejoice that there's another soul added to hell. God imprinted his image on everyone. In fact, that's why, according to the scriptures, killing someone without justification is so offensive to God. Genesis 9.6 says this, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God he made man. These are the things in theology that can cause our thinking to break down. And I swear we have to just trust the Lord because it's clear from Scripture not every person will be saved. Everyone who rejects God by refusing to place their faith in Jesus Christ will wind up experiencing for themselves the wrath of God. It's horrifying to think about. And yet God has made clear that there's some value inherent in every person who bears His image. Second Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to Repentance. If I ask you, do you want every person that you can think of to come to faith in Christ? I think we'd all say yes. If I ask you, in principle, do you think we should take the gospel to every person on the earth? Do you want every person to be saved? I think we'd all say, of course. If they would come to know Christ, what a difference it would make. But where we break down is in the application of that to specific individuals. Because some people, I think in our hearts, we don't want to be forgiven. I think in our humanness it would offend us if Hitler had heard the gospel right before he died. There's no evidence that he did. But sometimes we think he deserved it. If you read the history of Joseph Stalin, he may have killed more people than Hitler. I think he did, of his own people. Brutal man. Vile. Boy, I hope he didn't hear the gospel, we can find ourselves thinking. And I think many of us think that about someone like a Saddam Hussein or Osama bin Laden... And sadly, for some of us, it even just comes to just picking out politicians we don't like. We tend to think that some people get what they deserved and we're happy about it. But we only think this because we don't think our sins were that bad. They deserved it, but really we're not in their category. And if we adopt that type of thinking, we stop honoring all people and we just divide them up and say, well, we like them and we don't like them. We forget Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what is the ultimate point? No Christian should despise other human beings simply because. That doesn't mean we can't be outraged by sin. That doesn't mean people should not be punished by the lawful government for their crimes. That doesn't mean that sometimes wars aren't necessary to restrain evil. But it does mean that in our hearts we should try to see something of the image of God in every person we come in contact with. Even the worst sinner, if he comes to faith, is redeemable. But in the church, honoring all people should end racism. That should not exist. If the words, those people, followed by some contempt or scorn, comes from your mouth, you should repent. Because those people, whoever they are in any given circumstance, are still people created in the image of God, and they need the gospel. We should honor all people. We want to make sure that we, as followers of Christ, as those who bear his image and who know his son, don't fall into the trap of James 3. I talked through this years ago, but in James chapter 3, he's talking about the tongue, verses 8 through 10. But no one can tame the tongue, it is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. That's a good thing. And with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought to be this way. James 3, verses 8 to 10. James chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. Add any category. Begin to honor all people. Be careful how you talk about the people you know at work about people from other countries who come here, about politicians, whatever the party they're from, about people on TV, about news figures. Be careful how you talk about anyone made in the image of God, which is everyone. If Christians followed this and honored all people, some people are still going like, to dislike us. Some people are still going to falsely accuse us. But at least they'll see that we live with a measure of respect For those created in the image of God that's different from anyone else. So, Peter tells us to honor all people. And then the second thing that he says is love the brotherhood. Again, in my overarching point, this is how we live at peace. Honor all people, which is everyone that we come encounter with. But there's something special. We're supposed to love the brotherhood. This goes beyond just having a measure of respect for everyone. This is a hard attitude and actions towards the household of God. Again, it goes beyond just the general honor that's due to all humans because this is dealing with those that God has redeemed, brothers and sisters in Christ. This duty of love is ongoing, it's permanent, it's lifelong, and it applies to the universal church. There's never a time when we can stop loving other believers. And this is clear not only from Peter's command, but it's also clear from the rest of Scripture. Jesus himself in John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35 said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. It's evangelistic. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. In fact, if you read all of Scripture, you realize if you don't have love for other Christians, you're not a Christian. First John chapter 4, verses 19 to 21. First John chapter 4, verses 19 to 21 says this We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Every now and again you'll bump into somebody that says, Well, I love Jesus, I just don't like the church. I don't like people. I can understand not liking some structures, but if you understand the New Testament and that the church universal is comprised of those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, if you don't like them, you don't really love God. Again, it extends beyond the small circle of believers who are our good friends. It extends beyond this Sunday school class. It extends even beyond Lakeside. Although we're supposed to have tremendous love for one another here. You should love every person at Lakeside. You should love every person in this class. But it isn't just about our little church. It's any believer at any time. We are a family. We have to examine our hearts and see how we're dealing with other believers. If there are people you know who are Christians, who you despise, who you're embittered against, you need to repent. We point out error at Lakeside. You'll hear that. You'll hear Pastor Steve point out names. You've heard me point out names of false teachers. We correct bad doctrine. Those things aren't unloving. It's speaking the truth in love. But we've got to be careful when we take that a step farther and we despise and degrade those that Jesus was willing to save. And again, it's an attitude of our heart, but it also goes into how we live and how we care for one another and how we reach out and respond to people in need. 1 John John 3.18 Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. In fact, I don't have it in my notes, but James talked about when a believer sees a brother or sister in need of clothing, in need of food, and just says, Hey, I'm praying for you. No, we have to meet needs of believers. That's why from time to time you see Lakeside do a special offering for someone in another country. Or we will reach out to help someone else at another time. Because we're a universal family. I don't know what language we're going to speak in heaven, I really don't. But when we get there, there won't be any division. Division. What we'll see is the scriptures are true that from every tribe and every tongue and every nation the Lord has built his family. And Galatians 6.10 really summarizes, I think, what we've just covered in these first two verses of honor all people, love the brotherhood. Galatians 6.10, so then while we have opportunity let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The third command of verse 17 is a reminder of the ultimate driving force behind everything else fear God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God. This is an attitude of reverence and awe of the one true God and what he did for us. We should never get too comfortable with God. We should never get too casual with God. We have to remember that even though He reached out and put His individual love upon us and calls us His children and beckoned us to come to Him, He is still seated on His throne with all power and authority and might. Like loving the brotherhood, fearing God is a lifelong duty. It's not just what we do when we come to faith. It's how we're supposed to live all the time on the earth. And fearing God shows up in many ways. It shows up in trusting Him, even when we don't understand things. When life spins out of control, when disasters strike, when death comes unexpectedly, when illness afflicts us, It comes in worshiping Him in all of those times when we don't even understand what's going on. It comes in obeying His Word, taking Him at face value when He says, keep my commandments, we actually try and do it. Listening to Him even when we don't feel like listening to Him. Submitting our will to His will even when we don't like His will in a given circumstance. It's really foundational. In the Old Testament it often talks about true knowledge coming from the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1, seven: The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you don't have this reverential awe of God, if you don't fear God, again, just like not loving believers, you're not saved. I do believe that when Jesus was on the earth it would have been a remarkable thing to feel Him give you a hug when you were suffering. Put His arms around you to comfort you. To be able to identify with the Savior who was walking in a human body just like we are. But some people have gone too far. And their image of God has been reduced to God being Grandpa or Santa Claus. Yet I can assure you, if God revealed himself in his true glory right now, if Jesus in his glorified body were standing in front of us, we wouldn't run up and slap a high five, hey, how are you? We'd all be face down. We'd all be speechless. We would all be just like Isaiah. 6, 1-5 describes. I'm going to read it. You're familiar with this text, most of you. And the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. At that moment, I assure you, Isaiah feared God. What we have to remember is that we have a different relationship with God than even Isaiah did. If you know Christ right now, the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling in you. When we think rightly, we would never sin. What happens? We don't think rightly. We forget. What happens is the fear of God gets out of our mind because we're not seeing God. So we have to fight against that. We have to take steps so that every day we live with reverential awe of the king of the universe. And that's hard. It's hard for me. One of the reasons I love church so much is because in those moments it's easier. When we're singing together and our voices are lifted and the music feels like it's carrying us to the throne room of God, guess what? At that moment it's pretty easy not to sin, but we don't live here. And if you want to live here, you can't. We close up at night, so you've got to go home. (laughs) When we're singing like that, and we are expressing emotion, and we're praising the Lord together, I think that's as close to heaven as we can understand on earth. 1 Peter 2.17 is for when we're not here. Certainly fear God while you're here, but it's not so hard here. So we honor all people. We love the brotherhood. Above everything, we fear God. And then finally, Peter comes back to a simple phrase that has to do with the government again honor the king. Some of your translations would say emperor. It's not an incorrect translation. That king was called the emperor at the time of the writing of this letter. Now, it's interesting. We're called to honor the king. We're not commanded to love the king. Certainly, if the king happened to be a believer, we would love the brotherhood. But we're just called to honor him. We're not called to fear the king like we fear God. We're just supposed to honor, respect. We give the king the honor that's due to everyone, and we submit to the king. Honoring the king is hand in hand with submitting to the authority of all government figures. Remember that the king or the emperor at the time that Peter wrote this was Nero. Very few people that you could find, if you read the history of his life, that match his wickedness. I taught a little bit about him, if you remember, it was probably a month ago, but he was a vile, wicked, corrupt liar a murderer, a rapist, a pedophile. Yet Peter did not hesitate to remind believers that so long as someone occupies a position of God-given authority, you show them respect, honor. God will take care of justice. God will take care of what people deserve. God will call men to account for their wickedness if they don't repent. But our duty isn't to step into God's place. Our duty is just to show honor. Again, in America, that means we honor our leaders, whether we like them or not. We honor our president, whether we like him or not. And I've shared, I've tried to be candid. That's been a struggle my entire adult life because I get so frustrated with the foolishness of some of our leaders. And I'm an American and I love our country and I see some people leading us down a road I don't want to go on and when I forget my place in the kingdom of God I get wrapped up in the flag and the next thing you know I trip over myself and I stop honoring like God called me to honor and I stop submitting in my heart like God called me to submit. We have to trust the Lord with who He places in power and we need to honor them. If we can live out verse 17, we will have accomplished what it says, insofar as you be at peace with all men. And if we're at peace, the church will be at peace. If all of us individually are at peace, Lakeside is going to be a different type of place. If we're loving each other, it's going to look different. If we're honoring all people, our workplaces are going to be different, and our neighborhoods are going to be different, and our families are going to be different. And so far as it depends on us, let's be at peace by honoring all people, loving the brotherhood, fearing God, and honoring the King. Let me close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the clear instructions you give us. There are aspects of your word, Lord, that are hard to understand. They are deep, and they are weighty, and then there are times, Lord, verses like what we covered this morning where the meaning is crystal clear. It doesn't mean living it out is not challenging. It doesn't mean that we don't have to think hard about how to carry out a particular command in a given difficult situation. But Lord, what you've called us to do is clear. I pray that you would change our thoughts towards those that we disagree with, to our fellow citizens who are different than us politically or different than us culturally. Help us honor all people. Lord, change our hearts towards people in the church, even within the body of Christ and faith builders and in the church at large. Lord, help us love one another and help us not limit ourselves just to the walls of this address on Sunset Point Road in Clearwater. Help us love believers everywhere. Lord, help us fear you. One day you're going to welcome us with open arms. You're going to comfort us. We are excited about that. But Lord, help us while we're here to have the appropriate respect and awe for you at all times. And Lord, help us to be able to honor our president, whoever it is. Lord, it's been a struggle of my heart since I've been a believer to do that. Lord, help each one of us have the appropriate respect and honor for whoever you place in authority over us. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in this room. I pray that you will help us to apply these simple truths in every aspect of our lives. And Lord, where we've fallen short, help us to repent, When we fall, help us to repent and get back up. Lord, just change us and help our lives make a difference in the world for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.